This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Garden Web where, as our former dean once said, your heart and your head can be friends. The School of Divinity strives to provide a holistic education that stretches the mind, stirs the heart, and prepares the call for Christian ministry. Immerse yourself in the life of our community and join us for the Master of Divinity Preview Day on October the 30th. Visit gardener-web.edu backslash divinity for more information. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Our podcast this week will feature Jack Jenkins, the senior writer for Think Progress. We also want to let you know about several upcoming episodes, including Zach Hunt, an interview with Dr. Glenn Jonas of Campbell University, Uh, as we talk about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We also have John Singletary of Baylor, Diana R. Garland School of Social Work, who will be our featured speaker at Church Works in San Antonio, along with stories for pastors and practitioners across the fellowship. Before we get to our conversation with Jack, I want to let you know about Church Works 2018. Church Works will be held at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas, February 26th through the 28th. Church Works is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation in congregational setting. Church Works creates a space for renewal and ministry through practices of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need a place to be equipped, to be inspired, and to be renewed. We hope that you will join us for Church Works 2018 at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. Visit cbf.net backslash cw backslash churchworks for more information. Our guest for this week's podcast is the senior religion reporter for Thank Progress, Jack Jenkins. Jack served previously as the senior writer and researcher for the Faith and Progress Policy Initiative at American Progress. He's also written for the religious news services of The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, The Christian Century, and The National Catholic Reporter. Jack is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, and I see you're a graduate of uh, Presbyterian. And I want to say about the time I invited you onto this podcast, your school put a whopping on uh, on my school, Campbell University. <laughs> we don't do that often to many schools, so uh, but go Blue Hose, as the saying goes. That's our mascot, the Blue Hose. Yeah, that was one of the questions I've written down. What the heck is a Blue Hose? <laughs> it is it is something we have to explain quite frequently. We're also um, the smallest Division One school in the country. Um, hovering around a thousand students. It was a little bit more than that when I was there. But the subtext there is so at, at some point it was it was blue stockings. I think like red socks or white socks. But um, a local sports reporter in South Carolina back in the day 
used to say that I used to um, refer to the Presbyterian College football team, which had blue socks, as the blue hose, and the name just sort of stuck. And then eventually they just made it official. And so, um, and so now it's one of those weird things where every year, we, because we're a Division One team, we play teams that are one really, really, really good and way better at. at any sport than us. Um, and we usually lose, but two, we're, it's usually a school that's never heard of us. And we have to explain this in front of everyone over and over and over again. So you're not the first person to ask. Um, but we are still very proud blue hose. As it I mean, I, in practice, our actual mascot is a Scotsman. He looks, you know, kind of a person in a kilt with a sword, the kind of braveheart esque type character. But, uh, but blue hose is, is what we identify as. Yeah, I like the fact that you were trying to come off so humble about your school putting a, a beating on our school as if it <laughs> rarely happens often. And, and you know, the other thing is I don't know how it got lost on, on the weekend. You know, it might have been that Clemson was playing Louisville, Texas was playing USC, Army was playing Ohio State, but somehow Presbyterian College versus Campbell <laughs> University was lost. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is unusual, but we've had, we've had our moments every once in a while. That's usually what we, we, we live for as Presbyterian fans is uh, we get one of those a year, maybe two. Um, so sorry, your school had to be the one. Well, sorry, not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, outside of your really impressive writing resume and going to Harvard Divinity School and, of course, Presbyterian College, uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, so I'm, I'm originally from South Carolina. That's how I went, ended up going to school um, at PC, Presbyterian College, which is in the middle of nowhere, Clinton, South Carolina. Um, after there, you know, I, I spent I spent time working in politics, and then when I went to divinity school, I kind of studied the intersection of religion and politics. Um, I grew up uh, a strong, staunch member of the Presbyterian Church USA, um, which is also the uh, affiliation that the Presbyterian College has. Um, not to be confused with the Presbyterian Church America, which is a different denomination. Um, but uh, I remain. PCUSA to this day, um, and then I went to Divinity School, where you know, again, I kind of accidentally became a journalist. <laughs> um, by you know, I kind of ended up at the Religion News Service pretty much by accident, and kind of took to it. And as you noted, I ended up at the Center for American Progress, the Faith and Progressive Policy Initiative, for a bit, and then Think Progress, um, which is uh, it's it, it's owned by CAP, but it's editorially independent of. Cap, um, it's a, the news um, outlet there. Uh, kind of let me write religion stories, and then convinced me to come write them all the time. So then I, um, about three years ago, I joined the staff at Think Progress as one of um, as their religion reporter. So not the subjects of the topics you're writing on, but probably carpal tunnel syndrome has been your <laughs> recent enemy. You know, I this is true. I, I have purchased an ergonomic keyboard um, for precisely this reason, and have invested in good chairs because it is writing every day. You know, you, you got to make sure that you have you know your neck and your your arms are taken care of. And most of my colleagues, including myself, have some form of standing desk because it's the only way you're going to be able to uh, you know stay healthy as a writer. And it gets apparently um, carpal tunnel and stress related. Injuries get worse when the news cycle is worse. So it's been a heck of a year um, for a lot of us journalists, and there's been heavy investment on trying to make uh, our actual office space more comfortable for our hands. Really? Uh, Y'all have had something difficult to write about this year? 
Yeah, you're right. Slow news here. <laughs> well, before we get to thank progress, uh, there's one more award. I, you probably aren't familiar that you won it, but you win the James Marsden Doppelganger Award. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with James Marsden, you probably saw the unfortunate Superman Returns, the wonderful X-Men series, HBO's Westworld, and of course, you can't forget Nicholas Sparks, The Best of Me. But uh, yeah. Jack, you are the doppelganger for James Marsden. I, I will take that as a compliment, good sir. So no worries there. <laughs> so Think Progress was started in 2005. Uh, it's an editorial independent project of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. And over the past decade, the site has evolved from a small rapid response blog to a newsroom of reporters and editors covering the intersection between politics, policy, culture, and social justice. So, um, so as you noted, Think Progress, you know, it was founded over a decade ago. It's, but it's undergone a lot of transformations. When it started, <clears throat> it was kind of there, there was a bunch of there, if there was a glory day of blogs, it was kind of the mid two thousands, where particularly in DC, news blogs enjoyed a lot of power. They were they were you know cutting edge. They were faster than traditional news sources who were still trying to like make their way online. So news blogs often got kind of got news and information about politics um, quicker. And so I think progress was kind of founded in the midst of that era. Um, and it was mostly kind of a uh, you know rapid response. A lot of posts were no more than three paragraphs. Sometimes they were just one paragraph, usually just you know riffing on some policy idea. But in the last few years, um, Think Progress has shifted into a, a formal newsroom style approach, where we definitely have analytical pieces, and we definitely you know have people write. Um, you know, uh, opinion pieces, and we have some folks on staff where that is their main thrust. But the overwhelming majority of our newsroom, which is about forty odd people now, um, focus on you know reporting the news. Uh, it, we're called Think Progress, so we have a progressive outlet, but um, outlook. But generally speaking, you know, the way we approach that idea is the most progressive thing you can do is tell a story accurately and fully. So you know, if there's a thing we bring to the news um, world, you know, the media sphere, it's, you know, will, our willingness to kind of say, okay, the traditional way of writing the story is enough. Some voices get left out. Some people, you know, don't get the time that they should in the news media. So we make sure to both report on them and include their, their voices within our stories. Um, so uh, that's kind of like the general gist, but it's also a, a constantly shifting thing. I mean, as the news cycle shifts, so to do blogs and news outlets. So what Think Progress will look like in the next few years is anyone guess is anyone's guess. But um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, as you scroll through the site and you look, uh, y'all write on a pretty diverse uh, amount of topics. Um, it's not just politics. You're hitting on social justice issues. You're hitting on climate change. Uh, you're hitting on um, any number of of issues. Yeah, it's it's a. I'm really proud to work there, and they have. Quite a crew. Um, coming, we also we also have a really great sports reporter, <laughs> so we we cover everything in between. Now, as I've been following your writing the last couple of years, um, I mean your your writing is is very heavily researched. It's it's very well written and pointed. Thank you. And uh, you've recently written on some articles. Um, America has a skewed perspective of what qualifies as terrorism. It was an editorial response to the Las Vegas shooting, looking at the research that says Americans react differently depending on the perpetrator's race and religion and methods. Uh, another article, The God Whisper, the power of, of Trump's unofficial faith council in the White House. Um, why do you hit on such difficult topics? <laughs> 
And the short answer is because I'm a religion reporter. <laughs> I mean, the the crazy thing about the beat, and I think you'll you'd hear this from you know uh, other religion reporters as well, is because religion touches on so many things, you effectively have to be an expert, not an expert, but at least be able to be conversant in everything when you cover religion. That means you have to be able to you know, talk about economics, talk about climate change, talk about politics. Um, but it also is unfortunate that, particularly over the last couple of years, um, as a religion reporter, it was impossible for me to do my job without also learning quite a bit about extremism and uh, militant groups and hate groups in particular. Um, there's a myriad of different reasons for this. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the most obvious is that religious minorities in the United States have been targeted by any number of hate groups. So Muslim Americans, Jewish Americans, even just progressive Christians have kind of seen um, like a, an uptick in hatred directed at them in the last couple of years. And, you know, tracking that means that you kind of become an expert on how extremism functions and how, um, you know, at least, you know, the names of the organizations and who they are and what they want, quote unquote. And, uh, and so that's kind of something that I've had to add to my repertoire. It's not something that, you know, I, I sought out to pursue as a reporter, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it, it's where the story is. And so, for instance, the last, you know, the first article you mentioned about America's perspective on terrorism, um, it just so happens that I had done um, some work in that, uh, in that similar vein earlier this year when I was reporting on how um, if, if someone who picks up a gun and hurts a lot of people claims to be Muslim, um, they get significantly more press coverage, according to some um, uh, scholars, than if you are, say, a white Christian who does the same thing. And then more importantly, the kind of coverage you get is very different. And that was kind of that second story. And so the story at its core is a religion story because it affects religious communities. It affects how they perceive themselves. But the only way you can accurately tell it is by explaining how we as uh, Americans interact with religion, both the labels of them and then the things we ascribe to them. Why are some people called extremists or terrorists within seconds and others we take our time to figure out, you know, is that really count as terrorism or not? And so, you know, I, I think that's kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but the truth is, being a religion reporter, I think, and there's not that many of us, but the ones that are, I think, would, would back me up on this, requires you to deal with tough um, subjects all the time, because, to be tr honest, religion deals with tough subjects all the time. So, um, you know, I think you would, even the average American Christian um, would, would understand that religion is there in hard times, and is also a way that you, 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 you use the framework of faith to help understand difficult things. So there's no way you can get around it <laughs> when it comes to reporting on faith. So in the last couple of weeks, I gathered with this philosophical theological discussion group. Uh, we get together a couple times a month. Um, oh, cool. Well, we were having this exact argument uh, around, um, quote, religious acts of violence and, and terrorism and our tendencies to never label uh, anyone who commits these acts of terrorism or violence as a, a terrorist, you know, especially if they're they're white. And uh, I didn't really feel like I, I made my argument very clearly that night. So I found your article a couple days later and basically said to them, here, see, this is this is uh, what you need to read. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I mean, again, it was one of those that article kind of came out of 
um, you know, asking and talking to a couple of scholars who then pointed to other scholars. And a lot of people just don't talk about the research they do. You know, it's just hard to find it. But yeah, I mean, it, we there is there is um, evidence. It's statistical evidence to support what you were arguing, which is that we just talk about it differently depending on who's doing the shooting. Now, mm-hmm. growing up in the Baptist tradition, and I know the Presbyterians also affirm this in their tradition, um, this idea of, of separation of, of church and state, yet you're directly uh, writing about things that are going on in politics and policy. You know, how do you, how do you encounter that, that difficult intersection of, of separation of church and state and yet uh, addressing these very important issues? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, being a um, reporter who, I mean, you know, a lot of religion reporters are religious in some capacity, some aren't. But, you know, from a raw journalistic perspective, a good reporter should be able to report on anything. At least, you know, they might not be the, it might not be the best article, but they should be able to write something passable about whatever they write because they're able to be respectful of what they cover. Um, but, you know, for me, you know, I've, I've covered things that PCUSA has done, and I've also covered things that evangelicals have done, and everything in between, you know, it, uh, throughout other different faith groups, you know, whether they're Jewish or Muslim or Sikh, Hindu. Um, and, you know, if one, if one part is that, as a writer, it is important to um, distance yourself from the idea that you need to tell people specifically what to believe theologically. Um, that's not the role of a reporter, um, per se. It, uh, in my personal perspective is that it is, it is okay to report on conflicts over theology, right? So disagreements among traditions, um, over what, what is correct or not. I think it actually is a disservice as a reporter to pretend that certain theological ideas are settled. Um, or if you're going to argue that they're settled, you need to back that up too. Um, and so for me, you know, as, as someone who, you know, witnesses events and then analyzes them and, and writes about them for the public, it's important for me to give as an accurate of an image, a depiction as possible for my readers. Um, now to be fair, that's not always easy. I mean, like we, there are some things that I have written that I've definitely gotten blowback from, um, from religious communities that said, you got that wrong. So uh, this is true of any reporter, but I'm sure you, you, most religion reporters, but also I have, I have spoken with them. They've told me the same thing that, you know, if you, if you mess up covering one faith tradition, they will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and often the smaller the faith tradition, the more vocal they will be in their frustration um, has been, has traditionally been the case. And uh, so it, it pays to do your homework. It pays to approach, um, you know, tradition, uh, when you're doing in-depth reporting about a tradition, it, appears, it, it, it behooves you to spend the time to get it right. And I think in some ways the challenge is the bar is higher for a, a religion reporter than it would be for some in other fields, um, just because of how strongly faith, um, how, how, how deep faith is um, ingrained in society and in individuals. You know, when you talk about a theological perspective, right, that's, that might be how someone sees the entire universe. It might be how they perceive you know, the afterlife. It might be how they perceive their own soul. So you're not walking into, you know, a bunch of softball questions when you ask about heaven and hell, for instance. And so um, it's important to just know that th- these are things you need to take carefully and to balance that against your role as a reporter, which is to make sure that you tell the story accurately. Um, and, you know, the, the, the final point on this is just that, you know, with all of that caution that, that needs to be done, all the research that needs to be done, it really is important to remember that 
Um, your responsibility as a journalist when you write about religion and the intersection of religion and politics is to, re, um, to relay accurate information and that your goal is not just to make the people you're writing about happy. If you wrote the right story and it is, and it is accurate and it tells um, you know, the truth, sometimes that will make people mad. <laughs> um, and, and so that balance, I think, is really difficult. Um, for any reporter, but it's something that I struggle with as well, is that accuracy and um, the, the difference between accuracy and then just capitulating to the demands of, the, um, of someone you're writing about is, is, is always difficult. But it's a worthy pursuit, and that's kind of what journalism is all about. Yeah, I just can't get over something you said. I've just never heard of religious groups so outwardly telling people they are, um, I don't know, wrong. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's happened. I've I have gotten, especially early in my career, where um, you know small religious groups that all kind of mention offhand, um, you know, you get emails saying, "Well, that's not actually what we believe." You know, in our confession of 1967, our res- our collective body passed this resolution. Um, you know, you you get that a lot, or you get additional context, right? So, like I saw. Recently, not something I reported, but someone talking about how Martin Luther, um, the great Protestant you know, reformer, um, was also deeply anti-Semitic in his writings. He had written several different things about anti-Semitism, um, that, you know, about um, Jewish people that were deeply anti-Semitic. And so we were just kind of saying that as a thing. And then like the Lutherans showed up immediately and like, no, but we passed a resolution in the, in the mid-20th century, you know, um, clarifying this position and how we don't necessarily agree with that. And, you know, that's that's the kind of stuff you run into a lot where especially, you know, writing about Catholicism, for instance, I mean, that is you're dealing with um, you know, a long storied history and a bureaucracy that, you know, ultimately encompasses around a billion people. And um, so, you know, you have to be prepared for someone to email you and say, no, that's not what the catechism says or no, you don't understand how synods work or something like that. Um, but, yeah, it definitely comes up from time to time. I'm somewhat being coy with that question. Um, certainly, personally, um, the way that you write uh, about politics really fits into my um, personal perspective as a follower of Christ and as a pastor as I uh, try to uh, walk that delicate line. But I think this is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, depending on what Baptist tradition you're a part of, you might have been a part of, a, let's just say, a mega church where... Uh, you have the pastor who is specifically endorsing one particular candidate. And what's a, a nice way to put this? <laughs> I think what I'm trying to get at is just the sheer arrogance of clergy to act like they speak on behalf of God as if God is specifically endorsing a, a candidate. So I think one of the things I've appreciated about your writing is that uh, you'll go at those people, those religious leaders that are stepping out to speak, quote, on behalf of God, and and you take the time to point out the facts. There's nothing really off-limits, and you don't do it in a disrespectful way to them, but you're giving an alternative perspective for people to see. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, you're that, uh, you know, endorsing a candidate yeah, um, as a faith leader, if you do it from the pulpit, um, you know, traditionally speaking, that's, that's under the law, supposed to be illegal. Um, but the, the actual enforcement of that law is a whole other issue, and the, the shift in how we understand the relation between religion and politics right now in our public discourse is really different than it used to be. And I think you know, you're talking about what folks, what you hear at the local level, I've seen as well, where people are simply really, uh, there seems to be this deep divide over whether or not 
um, a faith leader, a pastor, a priest, um, and a mom can stand in front of their congregation. Uh, well, not just can't, should stand in front of their congregation and, like you said, speak on behalf of God and imply who God would support. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of theological questions in there that you know don't that nuance often doesn't come across in the news cycle. Of it's not just that a pastor endorsed a candidate; it's that. Um, I really appreciate you bringing this up. It's like what that means to the community, because that means, you know, you, you, that theology shifts the way you understand the role of your pastor and the, how you understand your God, because if God is endorsing specific candidates for, 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 you know, election, that just, that is a, that is a difference from how we've traditionally understood that in the United States of America as a society. Um, it doesn't mean we haven't had pastors endorse candidates throughout our history, but it's, but it's about what we agreed upon. And, you know, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable and it makes, it makes a lot of people frustrated that when they look at the today's news cycle and they see these mega church pastors specifically siding with right now, Donald Trump, but also just, you know, candidates that are running for office. Um, how is that changing the way one that we view our American society and two that we understand our own faith? So I appreciate you bringing that up as as a as a point of conversation because I don't think it gets enough time. I think parishioners are okay with uh, their clergy endorsing a candidate as long as it's the candidate they want them to endorse. Right. And of course, for many, you know, we draw the line when that pastor or theologian begins to speak out on issues that go against your particular political. Uh, persuasion or political party. I mean, as you write on these topics day after day, week after week, uh, it's difficult. So, so where do you find your motivation? <laughs> um, I mean, uh, you're the, you're the first person to really ask that question. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the glib answer is uh, coffee and <laughs> determination. But the truth is, um, yeah, I, I can say that I do as a person of faith. Um, you know covering things accurately and telling people's stories, um, I consider a form of bearing witness. And, um, and so, you know, there isn't really an option from my faith perspective, um, to, to not continue to work on pursuing truth. Um, from a raw journalistic perspective, it's almost exactly the same thing, which is that, you know, the, the point of a journalist is to be, the truth tellers to society is supposed is to be the ones who um, who 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 glare into the void so that others don't have to, or at least extract the information that the journalist individually or the editor um, believes is important for readers um, or viewers, if it's television or listeners, if it's radio. And um, what we see um, as journalists is that this year has been a tough year. It is. It has been a lot of burnout. Um, and you know, one of the things we struggle with more recently is so many horrible things have happened. And, um, one thing that newsrooms have always struggled with is, you know, mental health, but more recently, because when videos break of horrible things happening. So for instance, when there was footage of a car running down protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia recently during the protests there, um, uh, and the violence there. You know, there was that video was playing on loop throughout Twitter feeds that journalists see every day. And um, there was a big conversation among journalists that, you know, in the wake of this and in the wake of issues where you have, you know, where reporters look at beheadings or where reporters look at, I mean, have to listen to horrible videos, um, listen to horrible audio of, you know, politicians saying terrible things that, you know, maybe evoke horrible memories from the journalist's own past. 
Um, it's not something that uh, media as an industry is handled very well for the individual reporters. But this year, it's getting more conversation to say, like, look, we still need to do our work. But you might not have to watch every video <laughs> to to be able to you know uh, to report on all of it. We can maybe spread that around throughout the newsroom. Um, and but to a person, in my experience, you see um, uh, a dogged determination to stay on the story to make sure that um, that the readers get the most accurate perception of what's happening. Because if you don't, then all the other voices will take over. And the story will be told by whoever wants to tell the story, whoever has the loudest megaphone, or often whoever has the most money. And so um, given that our First Amendment in the United States has enshrined this really great institution that we call the Fourth Estate, that is journalism, it just behooves everyone from the bottom, you know, all the way to the top of power to have a respectable journalistic voice. So we just dig deep and hopefully, hopefully um, the journalists take care of themselves too. <laughs> um, but yeah. Ooh, that's some powerful stuff. Um, you know, I don't know if you would label what you do as the ministry of writing. Um, I see it that way. And, and I would say it's very similar to clergy that, that day in, day out, you face a lot of um, internal and external uh, emotional uh, difficulty. And I would imagine it's the same for those who were who are writing. So, you know, as you face this each day, um, where do you continue to get your creative energy? Mm. I mean, this is an interesting question. You bring up kind of like the parallels. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, when I was in divinity school, I, was, I got a master's of divinity. So my training was in ministry. Um, and so I have a lot of friends who are pastors and priests. And, um, you know, and for them, the question is always like, how am I going to preach on this come Sunday? Um, and, and, you know, I, we, I've had deep conversations with them where there's certainly overlap in the, 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 the realm of writing and the realm of homiletics and writing a sermon in terms of the struggles you encounter. Um, you, you know, you, you get a, and it's not even fair to say there's more pressure on journalists. I mean, in some ways, you know, in any pastor um, or priest or a mom will tell you, you know, you deliver a bad message, you hear it. <laughs> and, and a really bad one could cost you your job. And so, you know, that there is that definite tension that I feel in my writing that reminds me of when I was being trained as a minister of, you know, you need to, you need to spend time on this, you need to make it right. Um, and you need to not just, you know, uh, just, just throw it out there, um, you know, dial it in as it were. But, uh, one, as mentioned, you know, I, I, I get restored in a number of ways, one of which is my faith, um, and faith communities. And that just helps a lot, um, to kind of restore my soul because that my creativity for me and creative expression comes out of, you know, for me, my soul, um, but, you know, also the one thing I found is that journalists often are bad at this. They're bad at community. Like it's not a thing they're particularly great at often because it's such an individualistic culture and it's such um, a profession where, you know, uh, a, lot, a lot of you as an individual are on the line. It's your byline when you publish a piece. Um, so it, it's really important to kind of look outside yourself and, uh, you know, spend time with other people and spend time in places that are not just centered on writing. 
um, you know, I, I also am a failed musician. And so um, I, I, I spend time with friends playing music quite a bit. Um, and and those sorts of things. And I also do creative writing on the side, which is equally terrible. But the point of that is to kind of keep myself um, in a good headspace where creativity doesn't lapse. And, and to be clear, it does lapse quite often. I mean, sometimes you get a story and you get 15 minutes to write it. So there's not a whole lot of time for you to find just the right idea um, and just the you know right turn of phrase. Um, and it's really easy to get, especially in, when there's a lot of stress involved in uh, your job, to kind of want to just phone it in, to say, well, I'm just going to write this article and get the bare minimum out there. Um, but the, what, one thing that I can say just personally for me outside of my faith and my friends and my creative expression, I have, uh, sitting on my desk is the story that my grandmother wrote when she was a copy girl at the, at that point, the Atlanta constitution before it became the Atlanta journal constitution. And they, um, she wasn't a writer, but she really wanted to be. And so they gave her this assignment kind of on a whim. They said, you know, Louise, that's my grandmother, go write about the circus and just write it and then come back. And so she went and, and did that. She like, you know, went to the circus and came back with a story. And I think they expected her to say, you know, the elephants danced and some clowns did some tricks. But that is not the story she wrote. Instead, she wrote this beautiful story that took the lens of the reader and pointed it back at the crowd. And she pointed to, this was during World War II. So and she pointed at the soldier who had a thousand yard stare, who finally smiled for the first time when the clowns laughed. And she pointed to, um, you know, the woman who had a star on her um, uh, blouse that was evidence that her, you know, her loved one um, was serving abroad and she didn't know what he was going to be like um, when he was coming back. But, you know, she found, you know, she laughed for the first time in a while. And so the story became about what the circus does for the average human being. And not only do I love that story because my grandmother wrote it um, and because she's amazing, but because, you know, what's embedded in that is the true work of a journalist, which is not just to tell the easiest story, but to find the most um, important aspect of what's going on. And so I kind of keep that on my desk to remind myself, okay, are you, are you telling the story just because it's what the easiest thing, the first thing you see, are you telling a story that is closest to you know humanity and closest to what needs to be told? Um, so for me, that's my little source of inspiration. Mm -hmm. What's been the most challenging thing to write on? Huh? I mean, I you know, the easy answer is is, is just hatred and hate groups. Um, it's tough <laughs> because you know you're. When I write about um, the the worst parts of uh, humanity, when I have to write about folks who hate one race or religion or gender um, or sexuality, just you know, in, in many cases, it seems like just because um, they don't have a particularly well structured theology or ideology other than hatred. Um, it's tough because it, especially over time, because it's really easy to get jaded and, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, so I'm Calvinist to some degree. So, you know, there's, it's the great quote that, um, total depravity or the idea that we're all irreparably sinful is the only theological position for which there is empirical evidence. And I, I see that reaffirmed in a lot of the work that I do. Um, but it, but it can 
be difficult after a while because, you know, when you're doing, when, when I'm calling not only, um, you know, when I'm writing not only about these hate groups, but, but talking to the people who are victims of their hatred. You know, I did a whole thing for a while earlier this year um, where we helped lead our team in just tracking groups of people that were victims of violence and um, hate, hate incidences is the term we use. So that was Muslims and Jews and LGBTQ people and people of color and immigrants. And, um, and we had to dwell on that every day and then confirm those stories. And that for me was, was really, really difficult. Um, and it, what's interesting about that though, is what is arguably the hardest part of my my job, which is kind of writing about the worst part of humanity, is that often directly underneath those stories are the are my favorite ones to write. So, you know, one of my favorite stories I've written this year, um, you know, is one where after writing all of these story, um, all of these reports about hate incidences, um, I I found out that this one church whose ch- sign had been defaced the day after the election with anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, the you know late later that week they got a bunch of letters from a local Islamic society, um, and the church by the way was majority immigrant, and they got a bunch of letters from local Islamic society saying, "Just so you know, we we support diversity and we support you as fellow people of faith." And when um, a local Jewish community center got a bomb threat a month or so later, that same church you know paid it forward by sending. Um, letters to um, that center, you know, kind of creating the circle. And then the Jewish Community Center, then when the Muslim Center also got a bomb threat, sent letters there. And they all were doing it out of their own, you know, heart. They didn't even, they weren't even all aware that they were doing this for each other. They were lifting each other up as a community, all in this little section um, in Northern Virginia. And when I was telling the story, um, you come to find out that the, the, the connections that were forged in this really horrible way, through hatred and intimidation and um, just vile vitriol, brought these communities closer together, and they started forming coalitions and started advocating for each other, and they would show up at each other's press conferences to stand shoulder to shoulder against hatred. Um, and so it's, it's often kind of been this, this interesting yin and yang in my work where the hardest parts of my job, you know, often but right up against the parts that inspire you about the best parts of, of who we are as people and the best parts of people of faith. Hmm. You're such a reporter. I mean, my next question was going to be, uh, what's been the most fulfilling thing to write on? But that's such a beautiful story. I mean, because you just got done talking about this personal theology of total depravity. Yet in the story, you see the beauty and this innate human nature um, to have the capacity for compassion. And again, that's that's the one thing about being a faith writer that is really great is that um, when you get to be we report on the, in the on the God beat is what we call it. Um, you often get to have those stories too, because uh, you know what, what often goes unreported. Because the truth is, uh, unlike a lot of other groups, faith groups usually don't self promote when they do something really great, <laughs> because <laughs> that's that's literally like that's what we're supposed to do. Um, so you know, it wasn't surprising at all that when we've had this slew of hurricanes, that the first people on the ground were often faith groups and faith um, organizations trying to help people, that the loudest voices that were calling to protect refugees were historic, um, that were faith-based organizations. Um, you know, when I, uh, I went to cover the, um, during, when, when Trump passed, uh, when Trump, um, when President Trump signed his executive order 
um, his initial executive order on the travel ban, also referred to as the Muslim ban by our outlet, um, the, there were all these protests at airports. And so I like really wanted to go. Like I kind of convinced my, my editor, I'm like, there's at Dulles Airport here in DC, which for the record, nobody wants to go to Dulles ever. So it was a big deal that I wanted to go at all. It's a terrible airport. But I said, <laughs> you know, let's um so like, you know, I want to go. They're like, fine, just go. And I got there and I just had a hunch. And sure enough, when I showed up, um, there was all these, you know, a hundred or so um people gag- gathered around the entryway where people would come out from customs. And um, not, not only were they celebrating anybody who came through, you know, like welcome home, um, but over like a, a huge subset of the signs they were holding were uh, faith related. So there was scripture about welcoming the stranger. Um, there were <laughs> scripture from multiple different traditions um, about how this is what it means to be a person of faith is 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 to to be there when people are most vulnerable. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I get to see that a lot in my work and it is like you said, uh, as noted, it's, 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 it, it helps offset the other bit. Well, this is somewhat of a selfish question. Um, you obviously don't know this, but you're often cited in my sermon manuscripts on Sunday morning, <laughs> but, um, are there any upcoming works that we need to be aware of? <laughs> um, well, I just, I can, I, I just published one this morning, um, which is, uh, not uh, <laughs> something, I don't know if you would cite it in a sermon. It was a thing I did. I've been covering a lot about the faith leaders that are advising the president currently. Um, and uh, you know, when we started this conversation, we kind of talked about the separation of church and state and how that idea has you know shifted depending on which demographic of people you're speaking with. Um, and so I'd spent you know, some time uh, kind of looking into this Faith Advisory Board, and it's almost exclusively evangelical. It's, it's exclusively, it is exclusively evangelical that advises <laughs> the president, and 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 the overwhelmingly white evangelical, not to, not totally, but overwhelmingly. And um, one thing that that happened a couple of weeks ago is that Barack Obama, you know, the the narrative is that you know there's this false narrative that people that, that honestly both sides of the political aisle are guilty of projecting, which is that um, the Republican Party has God in it and the Democratic Party doesn't. And um, and that's like a gross oversimplification that has no basis in reality. Um, but, you know, one of the things about that is that Barack Obama actually instituted a bunch of, uh, he actually continued some faith initiatives that had begun underneath um, President George W. Bush, and then added to them. So we created this advisory council for the White House um, Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Projects uh, uh, initiatives. Believe it or not, we actually uh, interviewed Melissa Rogers a couple months back, who was... Uh, no way! Yeah, yeah, she was the final uh, head of that, obviously, and then with the administration transition, she transitioned out. But yeah, we had her on the podcast uh, back in August. Right. Well, she you, she is the first quote in this story. So nice. you're, you're, I feel um, ahead of she, you for once. Yes, you were. You were definitely ahead of me. <laughs> and 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 you know what she bemoans is they were supposed to re up. So the, there's the White House White House um, office, and then there's the council that Obama actually added to it. it, it about 25 faith leaders from all of religious spectrum who were like the super rigorously vetted group of people, and. Um, and you, but it has to be, you know, there, it, you have, it only lasts for a little while, and you have to issue a new executive order to re-up it. And President Trump just didn't. He just didn't re-up the the council. And so this 
faith council is languishing. The White House faith-based office, um, faith office is, is still without a head. Melissa Rogers was the last one to head it, and they have not replaced that power, um, that, that position. And meanwhile, in the State Department, you, you have this office of about 30 people who were, you know, who were advising the State Department and the you know, federal government over all these faith issues. They were they advised during the Paris um, Climate Accords. They advised for Israel-Palestine peace negotiations. And um, they had 30 people, and they've now been cut to four and enveloped within another part of the State Department. So you actually have this dismantling of uh, faith initiatives that were formed under Obama that that President Trump is actually dismantling. And what he appears to be replacing them with is these informal, unofficial, not um, uh, officially vetted um, faith councils that are overwhelmingly evangelical that advise both the president and, uh, according to you know one of the president's faith advisors who I spoke with, um, they're apparently also advising other members of his cabinet across the federal government. So that's a very different strategy. I mean, that's a very different um, form of encountering and engaging with faith than even George W. Bush, who was an evangelical Christian, um, had modeled when he was president. And so uh, I kind of dug into how that system's working, the differences between the two um, initiatives, uh, the the two strategies from Obama and Bush versus um, President Trump's um, uh, approach to faith advising. Um, so yeah, and I and I, I will say one other thing is I, I still have this ongoing series on um, Christian nationalism, which has a very specific definition um, that I'm working with, um, and I've got uh, hopefully we'll have some more stuff coming out on that in the next few weeks that kind of details how that ideology and that um, theology, although it's a very calling it theology is it's a very baby version of theology if it exists. It's more of an identity, if anything else. How that played a big role into both how Trump got elected, but also how um, you know Alabama's new uh, winner of the GOP primary, uh, Roy Moore, how he got elected, and how it might be really influential in 2018. Um, how this idea uh, that that you know that that both Trump and Roy Moore dug into that America is quote unquote a Christian nation that it quote unquote needs to be protected that evidence of the erosion of these Christian values quote unquote is you know um, LGBTQ inclusion or same sex marriage um, and how these often attach themselves to anti immigrant or anti Muslim um, narratives uh, all of that is kind of something I'm playing with and working on in the future. Now, did you say national idolatry? Is that what you meant to say? <laughs> no, um, national identity. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, although, sorry. I mean, but uh, although, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I did not mean to say that. However, the, one of the chief criticisms of Christian nationalism is that it's a form of idolatry. That's coming from faith leaders who see fusions of, I mean, and that's coming from even some conservative faith leaders who see that a, a too explicit conflation of your faith and your national identity as something that would be contrary to Christian values. Now, obviously, there are other leaders who agree the opposite, that somehow nationalism is a deep expression of their Christianity. But um, that is one of the criticisms, is that it is idolatry. Well, yeah, I would uh, agree. (laughs) Well, Jack, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, And thank you so much for what you do. I mean, you write uh, with such thoroughness and careful research um, I know it benefits my ministry. I know it benefits the ministry of many of my colleagues. So uh, so thank you for your willingness to engage the ministry of writing. 
Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, thank you. For, apparently you're ahead of the curve. So I should just be, you know, asking you for story ideas here moving forward. <laughs> Absolutely not. This will be the one and only time I'm ahead of you. For those who want to stay connected with Jack, uh, of course, you can go to thinkprogress.com uh, on Twitter. He's at dot org, dot org. Dot, dot org. Man. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. People yeah. make that mistake a lot, including me. So. <laughs> well, Okay, if you make the mistake, then I'm not going to fix it in editing. So, um, so you, you can also find him on Twitter at Jack M Jenkins, and on Facebook, this is my favorite at Jack is writing. Uh, hey, by the way, when Hollywood makes the connection that you're James Marsden's uh, doppelganger, ten uh, percent, buddy, ten percent is coming this way. Uh, noted, noted. The, the, when I get the royalty check, I'll make sure to send some your way. Uh, thanks, I appreciate it. <laughs> This week's podcast is brought to you by Campbell University Youth Theological Institute, or CYTI. CYTI invites students ages 14 to 18 to stand at the intersection of faith and vocation, beginning with a two-week summer residential experience at Campbell University. During the two weeks, students explore their own stories of who God is calling them to be and what God may be calling them to do. Students spend time with our faculty, industry leaders, and service agencies, experiencing reflecting on the disciplines of social entrepreneurship, restorative justice, public health, engineering, and congregational leadership, as well as how to positively impact their communities through faith, work, and volunteerism. Our goal is for students to begin to understand their gifts, interests, talents, and passions as ways in which God may be preparing them for their work in this world. Limited space is available for the summer of 2018, June 24th through July 7th. Learn more at campbell.edu backslash C-Y-T-I or find Campbell Youth Theological Institute on Facebook. Also check back regularly for our blog posts and information about one-day student faith and vocational events in January. As we go, we want to give a special thank you to this week's sponsors, the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University and Campbell University Youth Theological Institute. Be sure to visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories from our field personnel and church starters, along with their advocacy work and congregational work across the globe.